There we go. There we go. Welcome to the Tuesday night Bible study. We're here to study the book of Matthew, and we are in chapter, uh, let's see, uh, 14. Oh, no, I think we're at the very end of 13. No, we are in 14, are we not? Yes, 14. In any case, um, happy birthday to my wife, Sherry, whose birthday it is today. Uh, God bless you for letting me come and do this here. We're going to celebrate on Saturday, and we celebrated last night and a little bit today as well. Anyway, we left off um, in the Gospel of Matthew. There we go. That's what I need. I moved everything to make a note. That's what messed me up. In any case, we left off in chapter 14 with this recounting of, or like a flashback of, John the Baptist and how um, he died for the gospel, basically. And um, so let's see. Let's pick it up in uh, verse, well, we covered verses 1 through about 6. Um, Herod had an incestuous and adulterous relationship with his wife, if you can imagine. He actually married his niece, who was previously his brother's wife, but that would be his niece as well. Don't get me started. Anyway, on Herod's birthday, verse 6, the daughter of Herodias danced for the guests and pleased Herod so much. And we said last week these sort of dances were um, very suggestive, almost pornographic kind of thing. The girl, the daughter, is teenaged probably. Um, so he's so pleased with it and the feast has been served and everybody's eating tremendous food and drinking and they're probably uh, drunk or close. Verse seven, that he promised with an oath to give her, this dancing girl, whatever she asked. Prompted by her mother, verse eight, she said, give me here on a platter the head of John the Baptist. The mother had put her up to it. Herodias was her name because John had called him out for this adulterous, incestuous relationship, that it was sin. Verse 9, the king was distressed, but because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he ordered that her request be granted. No trial. By the way, the Jews did not decapitate, but the Romans sometimes did, and occasionally without a trial, if a ruler decided it was okay to do it. So the king orders that it's granted, verse 10, and had John beheaded in the prison. His head, verse 11, was brought in on a platter and given to the girl who carried it to her mother. Can you imagine this scene? If they're serving dessert, I've suddenly lost my appetite completely at this point. Um, by the way, so I know that you're awake. Say, Amen. Amen. Okay, good. And those of you on Zoom, wave or say amen or put up your amen sign. I see it there. Great. Or raise your hand. Good one, Patty. In any case, we said last week that John the Baptist lived a godly life. He was a prophet. Jesus said he was the greatest of the prophets, and yet he meets his demise in this way, which from a worldly standpoint looks like, well, boy, that sure didn't go well for him. But in God's plan, it couldn't go any better. Martyrs have great honor in heaven. Um, John did what he was supposed to do, and he even said at one point, pointing to Jesus, he must increase, I must decrease. And indeed, he did and ended up in prison. 
Um, John, John's disciples, verse 12, um, come and take the body away and bury it. And then they went and told Jesus. I want you to notice that they buried, not John, they buried the body. What do you mean? John's memory lives on in the scriptures, right? And it was an unbelievable, great, uh, unapologetic witness for Christ. May we be that unapologetic and strong and bold in our faith. Matthew, when he writes his gospel, has a way of foreshadowing things sometimes. The death of the forerunner of the Messiah, John the Baptist, foreshadowed by the Romans, foreshadows Jesus's death by the Romans that's coming later in this gospel. Um, a lot of the commentators mention that. So, um, verse 13, when Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. So Jesus is going to a solitary place, usually to get some rest. It's an exhausting ministry, and they don't have a closed sign they could put up, like, we're done now for the day, leave us alone. There's probably people coming at 11 at night saying, my son needs healing or pray for me or whatever it may be. He wants to rest. The disciples need rest. He usually goes to a solitary place, doesn't he, to pray. Uh, and even Jesus prays, yes, absolutely. So um, I think I mentioned last week that Herod ended up, um, because his brother was declared king, even though he wasn't a king, Herod's wife pushed him to go to Rome and get Caligula to declare you, Herod, King Herod, which he really wasn't. He was a tetrarch, which means the ruler of a quarter of a territory is all it means. On the way there, Herod's brother, who hated him, sent word ahead of Herod to Caligula that um, Herod had done some less than honest things. When he got to see Caligula, um, Caligula um, demoted him and banished him to Gaul, which is France, where he and Antipas, uh, his Herod Antipas and his wife um, Herodias died. John the Baptist, you will meet in heaven. Herod, you will not. In any case, Jesus withdraws from there, verse 13. It's not cowardice. Jesus is on God's timetable. He knows when he's going to be crucified. It's not time yet. Why unnecessarily? Put himself in danger of being beheaded the same way. It's not the time. Plus, we need a rest. So um, they're going to go uh, by boat to a private solitary place. What you see here is hearing this, the crowds followed on foot and um, from the towns. He still has a following. The Jewish leadership has rejected him. There's a lot of people there that still believe in Jesus. Verse 14, when Jesus landed, that means the boat, and saw a large crowd, where did he go? A solitary place. Why did he go? Rest, prayer, a little R&R. &R. Let's take the weekend off. 
They get there and there's a giant crowd waiting for them. Instead of saying, we're closed, go home, you people. You see here in these stories, the compassion of Christ. Three stories, this one and the next two. Uh, The compassion of Jesus Christ. So when he saw the large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. We read earlier, uh, two weeks ago, I think it was, that when he was in Nazareth, because they didn't believe in him, he didn't do hardly any miracles there. Do you remember? Here, they believe in him. He has compassion on them, heals the sick. So much for our rest time, boys. More ministry. It's beautiful. Verse 15. This is a famous story. This is the only story before the crucifixion that is in all four gospels. So what you say must be very important that not only the four gospel writers, but the Holy Spirit who's really writing these books thought this is so important. It's got to be in all four gospels. The only miracle before the crucifixion. And what it is, is the feeding of commonly called the feeding of the 5,000. I'm going to show you why that number is way off. Verse 15, as evening approached, The disciples came to him. Don't you like it when the apostles are advising Jesus? And said, this is a remote place. Remember, he wanted to go to a solitary place. They followed him there, the big crowd. And it's getting late. Send the crowds away. Get rid of these people. Send them away so they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. Okay? So the disciples are advising Jesus. Not always the best thing to do. In fact, it's never the best thing to do. And yet, aren't your prayers and mine sometimes like that? You know, I'm getting to where I'm, the needs, Lord, here's what I would advise that you do. I don't know, his timing or his will. I pray your will be done more than anything. But the disciples are very practical. They say it's a remote place, meaning no stores nearby, no restaurants. There's not even lodging. It's getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to villages. It seems like a kind thing to do, but they're forgetting who Jesus is, aren't they? Verse 16, Jesus says they don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. Now, aren't you expecting Jesus to say, I'll handle it? I'll give them something to eat. Remember that every story has a natural or physical meaning, meaning what? They're going to be hungry. All these people, there's nothing to eat, and there's nowhere to buy food, Um, but there's a spiritual meaning as well. So Jesus, wanting to start to train the apostles, says to them, you guys, I'm going to make this your problem. A good CEO, good manager of people says, how do we solve this problem? And puts it on them. You give them something to eat. When we get to the numbers, I want you to picture how big this crowd is. I watched the 49er game on Sunday. About 65,000 people in the stadium. Um, Let's see. Uh, So this is the feeding of the 5,000. We're going to find out that they only count the men. About 5,000 men are there. Generally in church and at 
religious gatherings, there's more women than men. But let's say one woman for every man, so now we're up to 10,000. We know there's at least one kid there who's going to share his lunch. There's probably a bunch of kids. If there's 5,000 couples, give or take, and they each have two kids, you're talking 20,000 people. At least 15,000 is the estimate I read a lot. Some say 20, 25,000 people. A lot. It's a huge crowd. It would take a while to feed them. So he uh, puts this on the disciples. By the way, Matthew also loves to contrast evil with good. What just happened was Herod's big, huge birthday party with lavish food in a banquet hall with servants. Now we're going to have a meal that's much more casual and down to earth. And Jesus is going to provide it. So Jesus goes there for solitude and prayer and rest. And there's a bunch of people. There's an obvious need. My wife and I and my family, we call this a divine interruption, where you had planned, we're going to do something, and then there's somebody who's got a huge need, and you go, well, this is what God put in our windshield. Let's do it. You know, let's help the need, and whatever we planned can wait kind of thing. So um, his compassion to heal in the parallel passage in the Gospel of Mark chapter 6, it says he healed the sick and ministered to people until the evening. That's why the disciples say, hey, it's getting late. It's getting dark. Um, this is the same day after the boat trip, whole day of ministering to people. Now he's going to challenge the compassion and the faith of the disciples. You guys feed them. So, because uh, later they're going to be giving, him, giving out spiritual food, aren't they? Uh, so he really kind of puts it on them to say, what do you have? What, what do you have handy? Okay, go back to the text. Uh, Jesus, verse 16, they don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. We can continue this meeting. Verse 17, we have here only five loaves of bread and two fish, they answered. Okay, you, those of you that have been Christians at, for any length of time, you know the story already, right? They're going to feed everybody with five loaves and two fish, right? There have been skeptics, this makes me laugh, that have said, well, these loaves that this boy had, we learn in the Gospel of John, a boy is willing to give up his lunch that his mother or somebody packed for him, and he's got five loaves and two fish. So there's been skeptics that have said these loaves were absolutely huge. 20,000 people can eat because the low, first of all, a boy is carrying, you know, like on his back, does he have a little U-Haul that he's pulling with him? It's kind of ridiculous. The kind of loaves we're talking about, by the way, are don't think Ghirardelli Square with a French bread loaf that's two and a half, three feet long, okay? Their loaves think small Burger King burger buns, okay? Very small. That's what the bread is. A little boy's carrying them. The fish could be pickled fish that could be tiny. This, it's not, oh, the fish were like 
wow, it's, uh, right, Ken, 200 pounds something, you know, 100 pounds. Not so. So all they have is five loaves of bread and two fish. You have to admit, from a worldly, logical standpoint, that's a spit in the ocean compared to what they would need to feed that many people. So translation, we have here only five loaves and two fish, they answered. Parenthetically, what, what are they thinking? Therefore, send them away. We're right. It's what? Impossible. They've never seen this kind of miracle. He's going to do it again very shortly. A second feeding, separate number, separate occasion. But in any case, Jesus says, bring them here to me, the five loaves and two fish. So he's going to use what they have. Please keep in mind, somebody donated to the ministry his lunch, dinner, the five loaves, the two fish. Bring them here to me, he said, verse 19. And he directed the people to sit down on the grass. In another gospel, we learn, he tells them in a very orderly fashion, sit down in groups of 50 to 100. More handleable that way. But that's a lot of groups, isn't it? If you're talking 15, 20,000 people. Sit down on the grass. One of the gospels indicates green grass. So they're all going to sit down on the grass. Taking, I'm still in verse 19, taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to his disciples and the disciples gave them to the people. If there's no miracle, it's going to take about a minute and we're out of food, right? It's not going to take long at all. By uh, looking up toward heaven and praying, thanking God for the food and breaking the loaves, as he did at the Last Supper, he's playing the part of the host. This is a banquet just like Herod's, but it's much different, isn't it? A holy situation. Um, he breaks them and gives them to the disciples. So if you've ever seen any Jesus movies, they usually represent this by him breaking them and giving pieces to Andrew and breaking them and giving them to James and then to John and then to Judas. And it just keeps going on and on, right? He's actually creating more bread and more fish from what was there, is he not? Um, a multiplication creation miracle uh, is what I'm going to call it. So um, let's see. He's going to create enough bread and enough fish. As a matter of fact, he's actually going to overdo it. He's going to create too much fish, too many fish, is that right? And too much bread. He's going to overdo it. Do you think he didn't calculate the right number? And, oh, gosh, do we have too much? Get some doggy bags for the people. You know who gets the doggy bags? The disciples. You'll see. For a reason. Okay. I'm still reading notes here. Yeah, we talked about that. Couldn't Jesus have done this himself without the disciples? Of course, right? Could he have snapped his fingers and everybody has a loaf and three fish on their lap? Yes, he could have number of ways he could have done this. Why include the disciples? 
It's a faith builder for them to actually be the ones handing it out and picking up the baskets of leftovers. It is also, like we said, it's a foreshadowing of them. They're going to be giving out spiritual food after he goes to heaven. The parallel passage in the Gospel of John is very interesting. There, the connection is made. He feeds the people. Listen, and he makes the connection for Jews. Everybody knew this story. The Jews in the wilderness were hungry. And Moses, they always say, it wasn't Moses. It was God. Moses gave us bread in the wilderness, right? Moses was just the human being in charge. God gave them manna. Do you remember? Interestingly, with manna, there was no leftovers, except on the Sabbath, there'd be enough for that day so they wouldn't have to gather. Long story. But um, that was a long-term miracle while they were in the wilderness for a while. Also gave them quail. That's a whole different story. But anyway, um, in John 6, in fact, let's go there for a second. Keep your finger here. These little detours keep you awake, and that's always a good thing. Uh, let's see, uh, verse, I think we want verse 35 first. Uh, look at verse 34. No, I'm sorry. I'm wrong again. So they asked him, verse 30, what miraculous sign will you give that we may see it and believe in you? What will you do? Our forefathers ate the manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Did you hear that? Bread, manna, from heaven. Didn't just appear on the ground. It fell, right? It is thought, by the way, that the bread, the manna, was more than just bread. In fact, the word manna in Hebrew, anybody know, means, what is it? That's what it means, manna. What is this? What is it? Kind of an interesting thing. Um, Now you know one Hebrew word. Jesus, verse 32 said to them, I tell you the truth, it's not Moses who's given you this bread from heaven, but it's my Father who gives you the true bread. See the distinction? We're not talking manna now, the true bread. He means himself. The true bread from heaven. You say, what do you mean Jesus is bread? Well, what does bread do? Keeps you alive, sustains you, gives you life, makes you feel fulfilled when you've eaten, right? Spiritually. For the bread of God is he who comes down, verse 33, from heaven and gives life to the world. Verse 34, sir, they said, from now on, give us this bread. We want the free bread. That sounds good. They're not thinking spiritual. Verse 35, Jesus declared then, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry. And he who believes in me will never be thirsty. Okay? It still sounds like physical sustenance, food and drink. He means hungry spiritually, hungry, uh, thirsty spiritually, right? That once you take in Jesus, uh, and the idea of eating is the idea of, I'm not just nibbling on the gospel. I'm taking it in. It's becoming a part of me. You ever heard the saying, you are what you eat? He's saying, because further on, he's going to say, 
unless you eat the body and drink the blood of the Son of Man, you have no part with me, which offends a lot of them at the end of this chapter, and a lot of them leave him for good. So Jesus claims to be the bread of life. Psalm 78, 19, interestingly, says, question mark, shall God prepare a table in the wilderness? Here it is. He did with the manna. Jesus fulfills what Moses did, but in a more real sense. He does give them real bread, but he says, I'm the bread of life, spiritually speaking. Moses in Deuteronomy had predicted this guy in the future that the Jews called that prophet. And the verse says this, that there will be another prophet like unto me, like me, Moses talking. Um, Jesus fulfills that office as the prophet like Moses, leading the people toward the promised land, giving them bread from heaven, so to speak. Um, okay, further on in this chapter, um, let's see. Yeah, we already talked about that. Uh, so John 6 is the parallel passage. Look at verse 38. For I have come down from heaven. Did you hear that? No, no, you were born in Bethlehem. We know your parents. No, I've come down from heaven, not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none that he's given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will, don't you want to do the Father's will, God's will? Yeah. Watch this. My Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son, Jesus, and believes in him shall have eternal life. Now we're not talking bread anymore. We're talking something spiritual, something much bigger, aren't we? And I will raise him up at the last day. Notice verse 41, they're starting to grumble now. Okay, now go back to Matthew. We could spend all day in John 6, but in any case, go back to Matthew. He gets the loaves and the fish, a joke of a lunch to give to this many people dinner, but he multiplies it. He gave them to the disciples at the end of verse 19, and the disciples gave them to the people. He's involving them. Very early on in the proceedings, if you're Bartholomew or James or John or Peter, you know something's up. You saw the little fish, you saw the little Burger King buns, and there's way more now, right? We're handing, I'm going back for my sixth trip now. People are starting to wonder, did he have a storage of food somewhere? One of the Skeptical theories besides the giant loaves and the giant fish is that Jesus set this up and had a cave with a huge storehouse of food in there all ready to go. Yeah, right. Would they truck it in, you know, the week before? In any case, <laughs> um, so he's already talking in the parallel passage about the spiritual meaning. So they're handing out all the food. Now here comes the sort of punchline, if you will, verse 20. They all ate, who? 15 or 20,000 people all ate. Could have taken hours to feed this many people. But it says they all ate and were satisfied. Do you know why that phrase is in there? Because somebody would say, well, they each got a little crumb. And so that technically they all ate. No, the, the, in the Greek, all were satisfied it has the idea of 
You know, you ever eat at your mother's when you were a kid or grandmother's and you sit back from the table, push away and you go, you know what? I couldn't eat another bite. That's how full, how satisfied they are. It's a spiritual lesson that he, Jesus, will fill you up spiritually. You'll never thirst again. Since I made Jesus Christ my Savior and Lord, I have not thirsted spiritually for, should I look into Buddhism or Hinduism or maybe Islam or the New Age movement or never, never. Do you? I don't think you do. You know you have the truth now. He satisfies, doesn't he? So, uh, yeah, we talked about that. This is a preview of the Messianic or Messiah's banquet, uh, Revelation 19, which is not just a party. It's the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's Jesus's wedding, and you're the bride. Even if you're a man, don't make me explain that. But anyway, uh so now we're back to uh, the text. They all ate and were satisfied. And I'm still in verse 20. The disciples picked up how many basketfuls? What a coincidence. 12 disciples. Let me do the math. 12 baskets. These are fairly large baskets, not little tiny baskets of leftovers. Again, Jesus did not miscalculate the crowd. Oh, I thought there was more. Well, go get the leftovers. A lesson here is don't waste what God has given you, right? Why do the disciples get the leftovers? I think it's an object lesson for them to see there's unbelievable abundance when we give something that seems insignificant to Jesus. He multiplies it greatly. You may be considering serving at your church, wherever church, whatever church you go to. And you may be thinking, well, I, I don't really, I'm not really that talented. I don't really know that much. And I don't know what I could really offer. It's very little what I could offer. The little boy offered something very little. Let just give what you have and watch God multiply it. The same is true for your time, your talent, your treasure right? Giving to the church. God multiplies all of those things. Um, okay. So the disciples end up with way more food than they had before, right? Because they really didn't have anything. It's interesting also, don't miss this point. Jesus says, take inventory when there's the need. What do we have? Five loaves, two fish. Where did they get them? From the other accounts in the other gospels, they came from that little boy who gave his lunch away. By the way, he ate more than he would have had he kept his lunch, right? What's your point, Joe? Don't the disciples have, and Peter, James, John, did anybody bring food, Matthew? They're traveling very light. They, Jesus is teaching them, are learning, just trust God. But shouldn't we bring a couple of sacks of flour and some... Let's just trust God. Look what happened. Pretty amazing. The Holy Spirit, in my opinion, moved that little boy to give up his lunch. What if he had said, this is mine, you go get your own. There's a bakery 11 miles down the road. You walk, you'll be there in several hours. Pretty amazing. Um, 
The basketfuls of leftovers. Yeah, that's a whole nother story. We already talked about that. Okay, the number of those who ate was about 5,000 men besides women and children. So we don't know the exact number. It's a huge, huge crowd. Uh, what are the lessons we can learn from this? Number one, compassion. When there's a need, God is compassionate. Jesus is compassionate. Um, let me see if I still have this verse on my phone. I pulled it up when I got here. Mm -hmm. um, I do not. But you only know the verse when you hear it. I'm probably going to mess it up. Um, I want to say it's Psalm 37, but I could be wrong. Somebody look it up if you got an electronic Bible. The verse says, I was young and now I am old, and I have never seen the righteous, uh, there's a phrase there, and then it says, nor begging bread. Um, anybody got it? Psalm I think it's Psalm 37. I could be wrong, though. Uh, mm -hmm, hmm. No, maybe it isn't Psalm 37. Darn. Anybody know? No? What? 37, 25. I think you're right. You may win the big money for this. I was young and now I am old, yet I have never seen the righteous forsaken. That's the word I was looking for. Nor their children begging bread. What does that mean? It means those that are believers are going to be millionaires now, but they'll have their needs met. God will provide our needs. Um, I love that. He provides for his own. He challenges the compassion of the disciples and they learn a huge lesson. Today, people are hungry. Every crowd you see, every supermarket with people in it, even a person sitting alone on a park bench. Listen, most people are spiritually starving. We have the bread of life, not physically, but we know him and we can share that with them. Like I've told you before, you know this. Some will say, leave me alone. I don't want that. That's okay. You planted the seed, but some may receive it. And then they'll end up believing and giving it away to others as well. Uh, trust God's unlimited resources. I like that. Little is much when given in Jesus' hands. Give to his kingdom and watch him multiply. The disciples not only gave out the bread and the fish, what else did they give? Their time. They were tired. We're hoping to rest here, Jesus. Send them away. Aren't you glad they didn't? We would never have this story. Um, so the king of Israel, which is Matthew's main point to prove with Jesus, is able to provide for the people of Israel, just like Moses, but in a more full sense. Um, we already talked about that. He satisfies spiritual hunger forever. Today, he says to you and me, give them something to eat. You give them something to eat. In Greek, it's emphatic. You give them something to eat. We have that same, uh, same order. Okay. Um, let's go back to the text. Are you still awake? Say amen. amen. Okay, good. 
Zoom, you're awake. Love you guys. Awesome. Uh, sometime we have to have a Zoom reunion where everybody comes to Oakhurst. Zoom tourism, Bible study tourism, where they come here and we fill this whole place with people that used to, usually are on Zoom. Anyway, um, interesting verse 22. We just had this huge miracle happen. So why verse 22? Immediately, Jesus made the disciples, compelled them to get into the boat and go, ahead, go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. Immediately. Let's go right now. I'm sure Peter, James, no, no, we'll stay with you. No, get in the boat. Go across. I'll meet you on the other side. Why? Go back to John chapter 6. I should have had you stay there. My fault. John chapter 6. Something is brewing in the crowd that isn't good. Verse 14, John 6, 14. After the people saw the miraculous sign that Jesus did, they began to say, surely this is that prophet or the prophet. Remember I told you, Moses, Deuteronomy, that was to come into the world. Jesus, verse 15, this is the reason he makes them get in the boat. Let's get going right now. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. So there's a separation. Jesus is going up to a mountain by himself, won't let the crowd go with him, dismisses the crowd. Everybody go home. You're fed now. He goes up to a mountain, makes the disciples get in the boat. Why? Because the disciples have this idea that Jesus is going to be president. And I'm one of his main 11, 12 guys here. I'm sure to get a cabinet post, maybe secretary of state, secretary of the Navy, something. The idea that they will make him king Maybe the disciples, it's going to be tempting for them to hear this and want it. Jesus doesn't want that temptation. Plus, he has arranged another lesson and test for the disciples. Get in the boat now. No, go. Makes them go. Do they go in the boat? Yes. Does Jesus go up on the mountain? Yes. Are the disciples going in the boat? In the will of God? Absolutely. Why do you mention that? Because they're about to go through a scary thing. And they're not outside the will of God. They're in the will of God, and yet a very scary thing is about to happen. Some people think, become a Christian, and you'll have smooth sailing in your life. How many have had smooth sailing? Can I see your hands? Nobody's raising their hand. There's still, it, what did Jesus say in John, the Gospel of John? In this world, you will have tribulation, but take heart, I've overcome the world. We're behind enemy lines. This, this, the, the God, small g, of this world is Satan. No wonder there's tribulation, there's hard times. We still are subject to the laws of nature, like aging, getting sick, um, being injured, dying, right? But our death is not a death because we live forever. We go instantly in the presence of God, into the presence of God. 
the friend of mine, Jeffrey, that we pray for at Bible study, was a believer. He died yesterday morning. I believe he went instantly into the presence of God, harmonizing with the angels now. It's awesome. Uh, my wife came up with that. Okay, so let's keep reading. He makes him get in the boat, go ahead of me to the other side. He's going to dismiss the crowd. Verse 23, after he had dismissed them, that's the crowd, he went up on a mountainside by himself, guess what? To pray. Wait, Jesus needs to pray? Absolutely. He's a man, fully God, fully man, but he's living his life in the power of the Holy Spirit. He misses his father. He had face-to-face -face communication with his father in heaven, John 1, 1, forever in the past. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. It means face-to-face -face intimate fellowship, and the word was God. He just goes on a mountainside to pray. Don't miss the context. Why were they going to the desolate place? To get some rest. He just ministered to everybody, did the miracle of the loaves and the fish, breaking them, handing them, breaking them, handing them, probably for hours. Isn't he tired? He's going up on the mountain to take a snooze, a siesta. Wrong. He's going up there to pray to his father. So he's going up there on a mountainside by himself to pray. Later that night, he was there alone. Why? Because the, the crowd's gone. Matthew wants you to know. He's alone. The crowd's gone. Twelve disciples are in the boat heading across the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee is of almost 700 feet, listen to this, below sea level. The mountains, some of them around the Sea of Galilee, are two and 3,000 feet feet tall. That's a big difference. So air can rush down those mountains. You can be on the Sea of Galilee and have it be flat and calm, and in minutes a huge storm is happening. Wind, crazy wind. But it can't be that bad because many of his disciples are skilled professional fishermen. They won't be afraid, will they? Um, let's see. And he later that night, he was there alone, verse 24, and the boat was a, already a considerable distance from land. Oh, good. So they're just cruising. No. Buffeted by the waves because the wind was contrary. The wind was against it. So they're in the midst of a storm. The parallel accounts in the other gospels mention that they fight the waves and the wind and the whole storm for about eight hours, if you can imagine. Eight hours of work, but did they get coffee breaks? No. Eight hours of fighting. Now imagine, I was thinking about this this week, the fishermen have seen this kind of stuff happen before. They're afraid. How afraid is Matthew the tax collector, right? How afraid is Judas the educated Harvard guy? right? We're going to see in a minute, we'll take our two-minute break now, and see just how scared they are. And we're going to ask the question, why did Jesus make them wait so long? Let's take our two-minute break. There's snacks back there, thanks to Sandra. Those of you that uh, are here, enjoy. Make sure you say hello to someone you don't know. Those of you on Zoom, hang with me. I'll be back in about two minutes. Thanks. God bless. Don't go away.
Welcome back to the Tuesday Night Bible Study. Find your seats, those of you that are here. We are in the middle of the Sea of Galilee on a boat that is rocking and water. They're taking on water. It's windy. It's scary. It's lightning, thunder, probably. I'm trying to paint the picture for you. And it's not going away. It's been hours and hours. And experienced fishermen are out of energy. They're done. In the parallel passage, um, Mark 6, 48 says that Jesus, from the mountaintop where he's praying, sees the disciples rowing. We'll come back to that. But he knows, doesn't he? Beautiful. Okay, so he gets them into the boat. They're in the will of God, and they're in the middle of a storm. If you've been in this Bible study for any length of time, you know there's the physical. It's a physical storm, rain, wind, the waves, um, all of that, lightning, thunder. Yes. What would the spiritual meaning of a storm in your life mean? It might be a health concern, the death of a loved one, a financial problem, an interrelational problem with someone in your family or a friend that's gone awry. It could be loneliness or all kinds of things, right? Okay, so Jesus is, this is an object lesson with a lot of different angles to it. Um, so there's two kinds of storms in life. I don't mean physical storms. I mean storms of life. One is a storm of correction, meaning you got outside the will of God. God loves you. He's going to bring a storm to get you back on the path again. But the other type of a storm is a storm of instruction where you learn something. I don't think there's any other kind. It's either a storm of correction. Are you saying I'm in the storm because I'm being corrected? No, I'm not. Probably not. But some storms of correction are also storms of instruction where you and I learn stuff we wouldn't have learned. Statistically, faith tends to grow, unfortunately, in storms way more than in nice, sunny, 73-degree weather. <clears throat> We grow more in the storms. Generally, if you're like me, I don't like storms. I'm praying, get me out of this as soon as you can. I'm learning to pray, but not before I learn every single lesson you want me to learn from this. That's hard, isn't it? I know people that have been in a storm for years. Health problem, whatever. Having faith in the midst of the storm isn't easy. But it's doable because how close is God? As close as a thought or a whisper. He's there with you. In the Gospel of Matthew, earlier, I think it was chapter 8, a similar thing occurs. Do you remember? Disciples are in a boat. Big storm comes up. But wait, it's different, Joe. That's right. Jesus is with them asleep during the storm. He's so full of peace he can, and so tired, he can sleep. Remember, and they wake him up. Don't you care? We're perishing. And he gets up and says, shh, and the whole storm stops. This is different because Jesus is not on the boat. 
The disciples are thinking, boy, he sure made a mistake. He should have come with us. But would they have learned the same lesson? No. Brilliantly uh, smart. So um, let's see. The disciples are in the will of God. They're not outside the will of God. That's so interesting to me. Did Jesus know the storm was going to happen? Totally. He might have caused it for all we know, right? The timing, getting getting the boat. He wants them to be in this storm. Verse 25. Shortly before dawn or in the fourth watch of the night, some translations have. You say, wait, what's, I don't know, what's the fourth night watch of the night? The Jews had three watches of the night, three time periods of a night from 6 p.m. to 6 a.m. But this is Roman time, four watches of the night, 6 to 9 p.m., watch number one, 9 to midnight, second watch, midnight to three, third watch, fourth watch of the night is 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. You with me? They've been in this storm a long time time. They're miles from the shore. It's getting hopeless. They, the disciples, have come to the end of themselves. And they're straining at the oars. They're working so hard, and they can't seem to get anywhere. I asked the question before the break, why wait so long? Punish them? He enjoys watching them suffer? No. Sometimes Jesus doesn't answer our prayers like that. I thought this week, what if he did? You pray for something, boom, there it is. It would take no faith. The waiting period is a faith builder. Do you like the waiting? No, I don't like the waiting. But don't pray so presumptuously that you say, Lord, this is what I need, and I need it by Thursday at 2.15 because he might not be on your time schedule, right? Or I need it in a half an hour. But he might be gracious enough to do it. So why make him wait this long? So the lesson kicks in. So they reach the end of themselves. We're out of options now, right? Could the disciples have prayed? Yes. Could they have called out to Jesus? Might he have supernaturally heard them if they yelled, Jesus, help us, we're in big trouble here? Theoretically, yes. So when we come to the end of ourselves, he loves to take over and bless us. When all hope is gone, human options are gone, he becomes the only option left. Unfortunately, this is the way we operate, where we try all the human stuff and then we pray. Prayer ought to be the first resort, not the last resort. Okay, so as you know the story, verse 25, shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them. Oh, he got a jet ski or rented a boat or something. No, walking on the lake. That's an amazing thing, right? This is a suspension of the law of gravity done by the guy, not me, Jesus, who wrote the law, right? He created the world and everything in it, John chapter 1, verse 4. 
He suspends the law of gravity and is able to walk on a liquid. If you know anything about liquids, they vary in viscosity, but they don't vary that you can walk on some. No, you can't. Okay. He's walking on the water. He's walking on the thing that they're afraid of. He's walking on their problem. What's their problem? The storm. Make it go away. He hasn't made it go away, but he's showing up, walking on the very thing they're terrified of. It's a pretty amazing thing. They're exhausted, and he's testing their faith. He wants to show them that he is the Lord over, listen, all of nature. They got the whole, they know now. How many healings have we seen, Peter? 200,000 maybe? He's Lord over human health. That's pretty cool. They've seen him multiply loaves and fishes. They saw him calm a storm in chapter 8. Short memories or something, but he's not with them now, so you can't blame them. They're in the middle of the sea, John 64, or 647. Uh, I'm sorry, Mark 647 says. They're exhausted. So here he comes, walking on the lake. Verse 26, when the disciples saw him, walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and they cried out in fear. It's interesting in Luke 24, when he appears to them after the crucifixion, after he dies, they think they're seeing a ghost. You remember that, John? Uh, Luke 24, and he says, uh, I'm not a ghost. Handle me and see. A spirit doesn't have flesh and bone." not blood, flesh and bone, as you see I have. He shed his blood. So they think they're seeing a ghost. Are the disciples, in your opinion, expecting Jesus? He'll be here anytime, don't worry. I don't think so. It seems impossible. We got a huge head start on him. Even if he gets another boat, he'd be crazy to go out in the storm, and it's going to take a while for him to catch up with us. They're not expecting him. If they were expecting him, might they not have recognized him? They think they're seeing an apparition, a ghost, a phantom. So they're afraid on the afraid scale, the meter of the storm, right? Now they see Jesus, they're even more afraid. Okay, now it's really like, oh man, it's a ghost, they said, and they cried out in fear. Grown men, experienced fishermen, a lot of them, and they're crying out in fear. Here's the compassion of Jesus. Not only showing up, but verse 27, immediately say, he said to them, take courage, be of good cheer. It is I. Don't be afraid, it's me. But what he actually says is not, it is I. He doesn't say, it's me. He says, ego, me." which in Greek means, wait for it, I am. It's a way of saying it's me, but it's also saying what? I am is the divine name. If you go back to Exodus 3, Moses meets God. God says, I want you to lead my people out of Egypt to the promised land. Moses said, no, you got the wrong guy. God convinces him, and God says, well, wait, if I'm going to do this, and I'm going to go tell the Jews, you sent me, what's your name, God? And God says to him in Exodus 3, I think it's verse 14, 
Tell them, I am sent you. I am that I am. The divine name is I am. It is the verb to be in Hebrew um, in the first person. I am. It's God's way of saying that I am self-existent. No, none of us could say that. You're not self-existent. No, I am. I, my heart beats. If you were self-existent, you would have created yourself. You would have always been here. You had to have a mother and a father for you to show up. Me too. Not God. I am. I exist. It takes in everything that to be implies. I was, I am, I will be. I am. Jesus uses the divine name. John plays up this angle much more than Matthew, Mark, and Luke do. He has in John the seven I am's. That's a whole study in itself. John has a bunch of sevens, seven this, seven miracles, seven sayings from the cross, seven I am's. I am the bread of life. We read chapter six, remember? I'm the resurrection and the life. I am the door. I am the true bread. There's a bunch of them. Anyway, I am. So that's what he says. And he immediately wants to calm them down. Uh, he's saying, there's no reason to fear. I'm here. And I'm God. You know me. That's kind of what he's saying. It's me. But do they? You're going to find out in a minute. They don't know him at this moment. They're about to know him when he gets in the boat. They're not expecting him. They're not looking for him. So uh, Jesus is revealing his deity to them, not just saying it, proving it. Take courage, be of good cheer, King James has, I think. It is I, fear not, don't be afraid. So he's still a ways away. We don't know how far. If we're all in the boat here, let's say he's by the door here. That's from Kathy on that side. That's probably 35 or 40 feet to the door. He's on the water standing there. They're freaked out. He says, calm down, it's me. Then we get good old Peter. Verse 28. It's almost comical. Would any of you say this in this situation? Lord, if it's you, and by the way, the word if can be translated, since it's you, Peter, uh, sorry, Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, please tell me to come to you on the water. King James has it right. Bid me to come to you on the water. That language is the language you would say asking uh, a king to call you into his presence. King Jesus kind of thing. Peter's saying, if it's really you, let me walk to you on the water. Now, we give Peter a hard time about a lot of things, right? Ready, aim, fire is the correct order. Peter is ready, fire, aim. He just puts his foot in his mouth, just says stuff, right? But you got to give Peter credit. I think if I said this as Peter and Jesus says, which he does, come on. I'd go, oh, no, no, never mind. You go first, John, right? To his credit, he does it. It's an astounding thing. Um, in chapter 10, verse 1, he has sent out the 12 apostles, do you remember? And given them the ability to heal the sick, raise the dead, 
and cleanse lepers. Do you remember that? Cast out demons, all that stuff. They've done miracles. So they're not common for them, but they've done them when they did that missionary journey. So Peter is bold. He is fearless. And he wants to be as close to Jesus as he can get. I love it. So verse uh, 29, come, he said, that's Jesus. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. Please note, John, James, Bartholomew, Judas, they all stayed in the boat, right? It wasn't like, follow me, guys. <laughs> You, you go, boy. You do your thing. I'm staying here. It's pretty amazing. How is Peter, who's not God, able to suspend the laws of gravity and walk on a liquid? Answer, Jesus is enabling him because of Peter's faith. Peter's faith was not just words. What if Peter had said, I believe you could have me walk to you on the water? That's just words. He said, if it's you, let me walk to you. And then Peter's faith grew legs because you know what he did? He stepped out of the boat. Let me ask you a question. If it's you, which step of the 50 steps is the hardest one? The first one. He knows that lake. He swam in that lake, fished, fallen off the boat, I'm sure a few times. The first step must be tentative, don't you think? but he feels, it feels like it's solid and it's not. How do you know that? Because we're about to see the wind and the waves are still doing their thing. He hasn't calmed the storm yet. In the midst of the storm, Peter says, I want to walk above my problem, above the thing that I fear in faith in you, King Jesus, son of God. The Old Testament has God walking on or through the sea, listen to this, in Job 9, Psalm 77, Isaiah 43. God suspending the law of gravity. Why? To show off? No, no. To prove a point. You guys are still learning, Jesus says, who I am. I want you to see I'm Lord of the whole universe, the whole creation. So, Faith grows more in storms. By the way, Genesis 1.28, God's will is for Adam, the first Adam, the first man, listen to this, to rule over the sea. Does Adam ever rule over the sea? No. Sins early, and that's the end of that, kicked out of the Garden of Eden, loses the presence of God. Here comes the second Adam showing, I'm ruling over the sea. Come on. I think Jesus stands there and waits for Peter to walk to him. What's Peter doing? Walking on the sea. Is that impossible? Yes. Walking above his circumstances, walking on the thing that he fears. Impossible? Not in the power of Christ. Where are Peter's eyes focused, do you think? For now, on Jesus. And he walked on the water and came toward, getting close, Jesus. But, verse 30, when he saw the wind, he was afraid and began, and, and beginning to sink, he cried out, 
Lord, save me. That's a prayer. You know that? Three words. Lord, save me. I don't think he needed to do a really eloquent, oh, Lord, I beseech you, right? And he's already drowned. Lord, save me. I think he said it really fast because he was going down. It, the wind reminded him, it's like the storm. I don't know about you. I do most of my worrying in the middle of the night. I wake up and I get, Satan goes, what about this? What if this happens? That hasn't been dealt with. What about this? And I have to concentrate on God and go back to sleep. Sometimes I get up and read the Bible if I can't sleep. But my point is, what you focus on is everything. Peter does not deny that the storm's going on when he's walking. He's just looking at Jesus, keeping his eyes on Christ. You say, now that's really good, but I've never seen Jesus. I don't even know what he looks like. Listen, we see with the eyes of faith. How can you see Jesus and keep your eyes on him in the midst of all kinds of storms going on in your life? The answer, the more you read the word and get to know him, the more real he becomes to you to where you do see him, not with your eyes. You're not drawing a picture of what he looks like, but you know his presence is there. You just focus on the fact that he, number one, cares. How do you know that? He came to them on the water, has compassion. He has the power to overcome the storm. He's already walking on the storm, uh, implying that they can. So Peter, you got to give him credit. Later on in his life, little maybe a year later, Peter, little ego problem, claims to have more faith than the other disciples. And you can bet they brought up, maybe five years later, Jesus is risen I bet somebody brought up to him, you denied him. And Peter would say, did you walk on water or did I? Hmm? <laughs> right? I'm the only one. By the way, it's the only person that ever walked on water besides Jesus. Jesus probably says to Pete, hey, I've never walked with anybody on the water. This is cool. And then Peter freaks out, gets his focus off Jesus, off the word, off the promises of God, off faith, off God's power, not his, and thinks this is impossible and starts to sink and cries out, Lord, save me. Beautiful. That's a prayer. Doesn't have to be eloquent. Verse 31. After about an hour of Peter gurgling in the water, is that what it says? Immediately. Jesus reached out his hand and caught him, pulled him up. Ye of little faith, you of little faith. By the way, that's one word in Greek, you of little faith. Little faith guy, why did you doubt? Are you saying that the doubt is what made him sink? Yes. Doubted it was possible, doubted this whole thing is just crazy right? You can't blame him in a sense. With faith, the first step is the hardest. You're trying to beat an addiction on your own? Good luck. You'll never do it. In the power of Christ, you can, but the first step is the hardest. The next hardest is the second step, etc. But by the time you've trusted him and walked with him enough, step 553 gets easier than step one or two, right? 
So he comes to Jesus on the water. He sinks in his own power. So Peter is actually, in this one story, a good example and a bad example. Both. Good example. Trust Jesus. Jesus said to come. I'm going to obey him and come and trust him and walks on the water. A plus. Jesus is standing there. He's looking at him. It's going great. He gets his eyes off Jesus and starts worrying about his problem and the storm. He sinks. F. Doubt. Okay, D minus, whatever. Um, I want you to notice, who does he call? Lord. Does he say, Peter, does he say, James, John, get a rope. Lord, help me. Gravity worked again because of his small faith. So, regardless of the storm we're in, number one, Jesus knows. You're saying I don't have to pray about it? No, you should pray. But you don't have to give him every detail. We, we had a Bible study uh, at our house in Rio Del Mar, which is outside of Santa Cruz, in the early 80s. Um, we had this lady. She loved the Lord, a little younger than us. And we would pray at the end of the Bible study. And this lady could go on for hours informing God of the details. You see, Lord, Phyllis has had cancer for 11 years. And now, and God, God's not in heaven going, let me write this down. What's her name again? He knows, right? It's okay to pray long prayers. I'm just saying, you don't need to inform. Lord, save me. But what? no matter your storm, God will be with you in it. He knows. And if you will keep your eyes on Jesus, you will not fear. Because Peter did not fear while he was walking till he got his eyes off of Jesus. Peter had faith. His faith had legs. Action speaks louder than words. Come to me. Go ahead, Peter. Oh, no, I believe I can do it. I'm going to stay here and stay dry. By the way, he wasn't dry. He's probably soaking wet. Um, walking above the problem supersedes it. Um, let's see. So a lot of Christianity is a battle for the mind. What do you think about? You ever get on that little treadmill where you're just worried and thinking about things and think about Christ? Um, there's a verse in the Old Testament that says he, God, inhabits, lives inside of the praises of his people. Just start praising him and watch how it changes your whole mood everything. Uh, we already talked about that and that. Verse, back to the, are you still awake? Say amen. amen. Okay, it was a weak one, but I'll, I'll take it for now. Uh, so, if you're keeping track, how many miracles? The feeding of the 5,000, it's a miracle. I mean, it's 20,000 miracles, you might say, right? Um, the leftovers, that's a miracle. Jesus knowing they're having trouble on the lake when he's way up on a mountain praying, and it's a miracle. Jesus walking on the water. Peter walking on the water, that's a miracle, that's a miracle. Okay, we're, yeah, we're getting up there now. Um, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Verse 32, and when they climbed into the boat, that's Peter and Jesus, the wind died down. The idea is, as soon as they get in the boat, 
It just becomes calm. It's another miracle, you have to admit. He calmed the storm. He didn't even say anything. Just him, his presence being there, the wind just died down. I don't think it died down over 15 minutes. I think it died down like that. Um, let's see, I'm trying to read two things at once. Yeah, 32, so I'm on the wrong page. That's the problem. By the way, doubting God is an insult to God, right? We have enough evidence. Um, Jesus rebukes Peter's little faith, but he had more faith than the other 11 who stayed in the boat. You got to give him credit, right? A good and a bad example. So we got Jesus walking on water. We've got the stilling of the wind. <laughs> That's not even the point of the story. If you think it is, it's still ahead. Watch. Verse 33. Then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. First time in this gospel, they ever say, you are the Son of God. Prophet, miracle worker, healer, bread maker, you know, something. You are the Son of God, and they worshipped him. Proskuneo means they bowed down to him. That's the point of the story. Would they have worshipped him in any other circumstance? I don't know. They should have. He multiplied the loaves and the fish and what have you. But here he is in the boat, calmed the storm, walked on water, and now they get it. That's the lesson he wanted to teach them. It was for them, if you ask them when you get to meet him in heaven, I bet they'll say, that was a painful, long, scary lesson. But they came through the storm, listen, with greater faith, greater understanding about Jesus, and greater worship. And there's no higher, listen, occupation to be doing on planet earth, none than worshiping God. That's why we were made. Having children and going to work and blessing people and giving, that's all great. Witnessing for Christ, that's great. Worshiping God, it doesn't get any more important than that. And they bow down and worship him. If theoretically I'm wrong and Jesus is not God, then this is blasphemy that they're worshiping him. He, Jesus, should say, no, 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 get up, get up, get up, get up. Don't worship me, worship God. Worship only God. That's what the Old Testament says. Does he receive worship here and several other places in the New Testament? Absolutely. I have it in my notes somewhere. Uh, Matthew 8, Matthew 28, Luke 24, John 9, Hebrews 1, 6, Philippians 2, 10. Jesus receives worship. You want to know how serious this is if he's not God? In the, in the book of Revelation, twice, John is so overcome with the angel that he's communicating with and the glory that's going on. John incorrectly, bows down and starts to worship the angel. Do you remember? Twice. And the angel says, no, 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 no. Get up. Worship God only. Jesus receives worship. He is fully God and fully man. Um, we already talked about that. Uh, 
In Matthew 16, 16, Jesus is talking to the disciples. We'll get there. Probably take us 10 more years, but we'll get there. Jesus says, who do men say that I am? Do you remember that passage? And they say, well, some think you're Elijah or Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. And he says in Greek, like this, double the word you is there twice. But what about you? Who do you say that I am? And he, Peter's the one, maybe because of this. And he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Remember that? Okay, let's move on. Loaves and fish, walking on the water, all leading up to worship. Verse 34, by the way, in a parallel account, um, John 6.21, there's another miracle Matthew leaves out. You say, we've had a lot already. No kidding. The other miracle is they're in the middle of the lake. Picture it, okay? Not Bass Lake, which is not a very wide lake, right? It's, you could swim from one side to the other. I mean, it's not that small, but it's not huge. Sea of Galilee is, I think, six or seven miles wide and 12 or 13 miles long. I could be wrong, but it's something like that. It's big. Miracle number one, he knew. Number two, walked on the water. Stopped the storm. Peter walked on the water. They worshiped him. These are all miracles. John 6.21 says, as soon as Jesus got in the boat, not only did the storm cease, but they were instantly at their destination where they were going. Just some sort of a time warp thing. I don't know how. He beamed them up like Star Trek and boom, they were there. I don't know. But they were instantly where they were supposed to be going. Um, okay. <laughs> when they crossed, had crossed over, verse 34, they landed at Gennesaret. You may remember Gennesaret, which is where he cast a demon, many demons, out of a guy, made him go into a herd of pigs, do you remember? And they rushed into the sea. That's Gennesaret. Um, the demons with the pig, yeah. Um, so now John, Matthew's going to end the chapter with a little summary of his ministry at this point. Let's look at it now. Verse 35, when the men of that place recognized Jesus, he's really become famous there. They sent word to all the surrounding country. People brought all their sick to him. It appears to me Jesus hasn't slept all night, right? He ministered to people, healing them on the other coast, remember? Went up on the mountain to pray, not sleep. Then walked on the water, miles out to the disciples. Now they're at the other side, and here we go again. When they get there, they recognize him. They bring all their sick to him, and Jesus said, leave me alone, I'm tired. No. Verse 36, and, Jesus, and they begged him to let the sick just touch the edge of his cloak, and all who touched it were healed. The edge of his garment, the hem, if you will. What's going on here? That, for some people, was a point of contact physically. 
if I can touch the hem of his garment, I'll be healed. Do you remember the woman that had the bleeding issue said the same thing to herself and then explained to Jesus later, if I just, she didn't even tell him and she touched it and she was healed. These people need that point of contact. Listen, you don't need that. Neither do I. Because what are you going to touch? In the book of Acts, they have Paul's handkerchiefs or the shadow of Peter passing people and people being healed. You and I don't need that. But if you send $29.95 for a prayer cloth, I will send you. You don't need that. You don't need that point of contact. It might help you to clutch your little um, cross or bow to a statue. That is not good. Don't do it. He's being gracious to them, letting them do that. That You don't need that. You pray. He knows. He loves you. He'll do the best thing. But he might make you wait till the fourth watch of the night. He's made me wait. I'm still waiting for some things that I pray for. It's okay. There's a reason. I'm in a storm. Some of you are in a storm right now. Um... Handkerchiefs and aprons, Paul, uh, Acts 19, 11 to 12. Peter's shadow, Acts 5. Stronger faith needs no physical point of contact, no statue, no magic, no anything. Prayer. You're reaching up to God in prayer. Um, let's close with prayer, speaking of prayer, and we'll get out of here. Remember, next week is the last Bible study of this year. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you have met our needs. We have abundant food. We don't have the feast that Herod had, but we have all we need. We have the bread of life. We are not thirsty spiritually. We are not hungry spiritually. You have filled us up. There are people listening to the sound of my voice, God, who are in a storm or just came through one or don't know it, but they're going to start a storm tomorrow. It's inevitable on, on this earth. And there's varieties of ways storms manifest themselves in our lives. But regardless, is there any storm that you are not Lord over? Answer, no. You are Lord over every storm. Help us to keep our eyes on Jesus in the storms and out of the storms so that when the storms come, we are able to walk, as Peter did, above our circumstances with total peace, even in the midst of the storm. Thank you, God, that the other parable that's told in the story is that Jesus does end the storm at some point. If we have to wait, God, give us your patience and great faith to do so. We don't want to hear, oh, you of little faith. Thank you that you are the all-knowing, all-powerful. God, and Jesus Christ, our Lord, is as well. Lord, the whole point of all this is worship. May we worship you in spirit and in truth, knowing who and what you are. We don't need to see miracles. We don't need point of contact. Help us to trust you totally, keeping our eyes on you by reading your word, by praying, and remembering who you are. We love you and we can't wait to see you. But in the meantime, use us for your glory. We pray all these things in the mighty name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Make sure you say hello to someone you don't know in this room. It's very important. And finish those treats. Are they done? Oh, they're gone. Oh, they're gone. Darn.
I'll get a cookie at home or on the way home. God bless you all. Thanks for watching. We'll see you next time. God bless.